Would you like me to seduce you? That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, he walks in a month. Why? Hey guys, welcome to the Celluloid Fiends podcast. I'm your host, Mo Long. You can follow us at Celluloid Fiends on Facebook and Twitter, as well as Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram. If you want to check me out, you can follow me at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. And you can read my writing on film at cupofmo.com. And you can check out my articles on consumer tech at techuplife.com. And tonight, we have circle up the wagons pilgrim it's west clifton over here back on the celluloid fiends again uh i am a writer i'm a musician i am a film nerd uh and i let's see you can follow me on social media at cliff weston on instagram and you can check out my fiction writing um at wdclifton.wordpress.com so tonight we will be talking about the 1959 classic Rio Bravo. This has a 100% critic rating with a 91% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. And it was the second highest ranking Western 63rd overall in the 2012 Sight and Sound Critics Poll of the greatest films ever made. And in 2008 the American Film Institute, AFI, nominated this film for its top 10 Western films list. And unfortunately, I have to say that I looked today and I don't think that it's on the current top 10 Westerns list, sadly, but at one point it was. That is a bit of a bummer. I know. Because admittedly, I haven't actually seen a ton of Westerns, but this is, to slightly give away my rating perhaps, Easily in my top 10 Westerns. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's, I had seen about half the ones on the on the top 10 list for the AFI, and uh, they picked some good ones, but I was sad to see this one not on there anymore. Do you remember what else was on there? Oh, I'm pretty sure Red River was on there, Stagecoach, um, High Noon was on there. Um, I can't really remember the other ones right now. There were several others that I had seen, but those were the ones that are standing out in my mind. And uh, I, I think I've only probably seen a handful from that list. But this had a budget of $1,214,899, and it made $5.75 at the box office, which is quite a good ROI. So you want to give us a little plot summary? Absolutely. So, uh, after a cold-blooded murder is committed in the local saloon, Sheriff John T. Chance, played by John Wayne, arrests Joe Burdett, played by Claude Akins, with the aid of his disgraced deputy dude, uh, Dean Martin. With only a ragtag band comprised of crippled jailer, played by Walter Brennan, 
a baby-faced gunslinger played by Ricky Nelson, and a tough-talking woman with a past played by Angie Dickinson. Chance and Dude must fight off the gunman sent by Burdett's wealthy brother Nathan and hold him in jail until the arrival of the U.S. Marshal. And this was a Wes pick. Mm-hmm. So, Wes, tell me, why did you pick Rio Bravo? So, to give away how I feel about this movie, this is one of my favorite films of all time. Um, I, I'm a big Western fan, and um, like with a lot of people, I guess, you know, I, I sort of inherited that from my dad. My dad, I grew up on a farm, and uh, my dad uh, loved Westerns, and he loved John Wayne in particular. And so when I got a little older, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really care as much, at least I didn't, about some of the stuff that your parents are into. But when I got a little older, I got curious about Westerns. Um, and I started watching some, and one of the first ones I wanted to watch was Rio Bravo. And, and what brought me to it was the fact that I was a big Dean Martin fan. I'm a big Rat Pack guy. I love uh, the Rat Pack, their music, and I, I was into Dean Martin. And when I saw that he had co-starred in this, it made me really want to watch it, and I checked it out. And uh, I said something on social media earlier, and, and it, I think it rings true. I had seen and enjoyed Western films before I watched Rio Bravo, but I think that Rio Bravo was the first time that I realized I love Westerns. I think Rio Bravo is is the movie that kind of like birthed my love of Westerns as an overall genre. I just think it's really a, a great movie. There's a lot going on with this movie and i just really i love it and what actually made me think of it in this instance was a couple weeks ago a few weeks ago now was john wayne's birthday and i made a little post about it uh on our instagram and uh i posted the theme song the dimitri tiamkin uh theme song from red river which is the same melody to a famous song from this movie and it just kind of stuck in my head and made me uh, get rio bravo back in my mind and I, I would echo a lot of those sentiments that it's just a fantastic film. And I would I would hazard a guess that it probably is one of the Westerns that has a lot of appeal to people who aren't necessarily fans of the Western genre. And you watched this three times this week. Yeah, well, two and a half. Yeah, I did. I, I couldn't get it out of my mind, man. I, so the first time I watched it was just because it had been a while since I revisited Rio Bravo. And so I watched it um, just to get ready for the podcast. And then I watched it with a commentary track because it had a com- the, my Blu-ray had a commentary track with uh, film scholar Richard Schickel and also one of both of our favorite directors, John Carpenter, which I was really interested to hear John Carpenter's take. I knew he was a big Howard Hawks fan. Um, the director of this film. And so I wanted to hear that. So I watched it again with the commentary track. And then honestly, Mo, I didn't plan on watching it again. And I was just so excited thinking about it that I got up today and watched the first eh, half of it again. <laughs> uh, that was that was like me this morning. I, I watched half of High Noon last night and uh-huh. the other half this morning. Okay. So uh, I'm, I'm, uh, we'll have to compare those a little bit. I'm glad to hear uh, that you, that you uh, are ready to discuss that as well. Oh, oh, I am. I'm I'm very excited about that comparison. Uh, and so do you remember, though, your first exposure to this film? Like, like, do you remember the specific instance? I watched it at home. Um, I was in my early 20s, probably. Like, I think I had already graduated from college. Maybe I wasn't. Maybe I was still in college. I'll tell you this. It was around the time that um, Red Dead Revolver, the initial Red Dead game, came out on the PS2. Because uh, I started playing that game, and that's another one of the things that got Westerns in my brain at the time. And so, uh, like I say, that, playing that game got, I just thought it was so cool. 
and I wanted to watch some westerns, and so I sought out this one because of uh, the Dean Martin connection. And I don't remember exactly where I got it, where I saw it. Maybe my dad had a copy. I don't know. Uh, but I did watch it just at home one day. Yeah. And you mentioned the commentary track. Yeah. With John Carpenter. Yeah. And I think you also mentioned that Assault on Precinct 13 was sort of inspired by Rio Bravo. Yeah. So full confession, as much as I love John Carpenter, Assault on Precinct 13 is one of his that I've not seen. So I can't speak to that. I know you've, I think you've seen it. Um, I I have not. Oh, okay. I thought, I thought you had, well then, but I, um, but plot twist. That's one of the few JC films that neither of us have seen. Okay. Well, I guess we need to fix that. Both of us, shame on us. But um, yeah, so I did know, like I said, that John Carpenter makes no bones about the fact that Howard Hawks is his favorite director. Um, you know, famously, Howard Hawks did The Thing from Another World, which John Carpenter would go on to remake, uh, probably one of the few remakes that has kind of become more famous than the original. Um, and then, um, so I, I did know that. And, and in doing the research for this movie, I read that apparently, um, yeah, Assault on Precinct 13 drew a lot of influence from uh, from this film, from Rio Bravo. And another one of our favorite films by the legendary J.C., that didn't, I wouldn't say it drew inspiration from Rio Bravo, but definitely from the John Wayne stereotype would be Big Trouble in Little China. Yes. Uh, you know, and you probably do know this, Big Trouble in Little China was initially a we- going to be a Western. I did know that. Yeah. So also I've always heard, and I think this is an interesting comparison. I've always heard people say that uh, Kurt Russell is to John Carpenter as John Wayne was to Howard Hawks, which I think is interesting. Oh, that is an interesting comparison. That's a very interesting comparison. And I think the casting for this movie was was very unique. Oh, yeah. So John Wayne, of course, I think was very fitting in that role as Sheriff John T. Chance. But one that I thought was interesting was Dean Martin in yeah. this role. Mm-hmm. He is my favorite character in the film um i've mentioned it several times before so it shouldn't come as a surprise at this point to say i'm a, I'm a big dean martin fan i think he is he was such a funny performer if you ever listen to his uh you know any of his live concerts uh he just he was a, a, a great singer very charismatic and i always like him in the movies as well just something about his kind of like and of course this movie is a little bit out of character for him even though he was he commonly played sort of played up the drunk angle. Normally it was kind of like the fun drunk, but in this one, um, you know, he's a person struggling with, uh, with alcoholism and, and with a, you know, it's kind of wrecked his whole life. And his nickname is even Borachon. Yeah. Which we find out is Spanish for drunk. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think he was my favorite character as well. Uh, I, I thought he kind of balanced some of the serious tones of his character with a lot of comedy and that's something i think the film at large did as well in fact i i felt like it was very comedic throughout yeah i did too in in the perfect way right i mean it's not a comedy film but it is a film that balances the drama with the action with the comedy in just a really great package 100%. And I guess a better descriptor might even be lighthearted. Yes. Because 
and and I, I, I'm sure we'll do this a lot throughout the episode, but to compare it to High Noon, for instance, I feel like that is a Western which has a lot of tension throughout. And one yes. thing I never felt at all during Rio Bravo was really a sense of tension. There's always sort of this notion that the heroes would come out on top. Yeah. And it's funny that you say that because actually when I watched it and I think maybe I'm a little bit out, but I, I, I mean, when I rewatched it, it had been a while since I'd seen it. Um, at least the first 50 minutes to an hour of the movie, they passed by before I even really realized that they were gone. Like I remember at one point I just looked to see how much of the movie had gone by and it was like almost an hour. Uh, and I think at least for the first part, I felt the tension and, and I felt the tension in the atmosphere, um, you know, from just knowing that they're, they're holed up in this jail for people who haven't seen the movie. And I'm assuming that if you're listening, you know, you, we're going to give it away, but um, that they're holed up in this jail and there's all these bad guys outside. And so anytime they would go outside the jail, there was always the risk that somebody was going to be waiting for them. And I, I, I really liked that atmosphere a lot. And uh, Howard Hawks must've liked it a lot too, since he reused it <laughs> several times. Yeah, I I would I would definitely agree with that. I always felt like this, there was this a sense of danger lurking nearby, but I and I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it was just sort of the machismo that and confidence that uh, Sheriff John T. Chance kind of oozes throughout the entire movie. But although there was a threat posed, I just never really felt like any harm is going to come from, to the main cast of characters. Yeah. And, and you're not wrong about that. I mean, this is definitely one of those John Wayne roles where you, especially John Wayne, you don't really feel like anything bad is going to happen to John Wayne. You know, John Wayne is weird in that in a lot of his roles, he is the thing that when you get into writing or, or developing character, they kind of always warn you against in that John Wayne's, a lot of his characters are fully formed at the start of the movie. <laughs> they might go through little personal journeys, but by and large, he is an uh, he is a hero at the beginning. He's a hero in the middle. He's a hero at the end. He's John Wayne. Totally. Yeah, but for a John Wayne character, I do feel like he this was some decent evolution. Yeah, uh, especially when you get to the last uh, the last scene in his interaction with Feathers. And I think that his interactions with Feathers, the love interest in this movie, is his really his only his his biggest his personal journey. I mean, he he goes through the journey with with Dude as well to help Dude, but in that one, he is sort of Dude's guide and mentor. Whereas his own personal journey is his his development of his relationship and kind of his opening himself to um, Feathers or El Duderino. If you're not into the whole brevity thing. <laughs> so while, while we're, while we're on that subject, one thing that just cracked me up was how the, most of the characters just had nicknames. Yeah. Like yeah. dude or Borichon, Colorado feathers and stumpy. Yep. That's true. It, I didn't think admittedly about stumpy is, is not very PC. Sure. Because, oh, yeah, uh, is, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because he, um, I think they refer to him in there as a, as a cripple again, yeah. not PC. Right. Yeah. You know, Walter Brennan, um, 
Man, I just loved seeing him in this, and I, and I love seeing him play that role opposite John Wayne. Uh, they did; a, they had a very similar pairing in uh, Howard Hawks and and John Wayne's prior western uh, in the late forties, um, Red River. Um, but I, I love seeing that. Now, I don't know if I don't know if that was Walter Brennan's real limp or not, but I know that the missing teeth are real. I know that. I did not realize that. Yeah, so Walter Brennan had been involved in some kind of accident um, that had caused him to lose his natural teeth, most of them. Uh, and he usually wore false teeth, um, but supposedly he would always ask so many of the commentary tracks and interviews that I watched about this movie set, talked about Walter Brennan. Whenever he would work with Howard Hawks, he would always say, teeth in or teeth out. Uh, and uh, usually, <laughs> usually, usually Howard Hawks would want him to go teeth out. Uh, in, in Red River, he kind of goes back and forth, but usually he would want him to go teeth out because of the kind of character he's playing, which is sort of the the grumpy old man, you know, the kind of like a put-upon old codger, which Walter Brennan just does it so well, man. I just, I, 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 there's, you see that kind of character in a lot of old Westerns, but I don't know that anybody ever did it quite like uh, Walter Brennan, who, by the way, was a fairly educated and successful businessman before becoming an actor. Uh, you wouldn't know it from the roles he was given a lot of times. I did not know that at all. And I don't know that I'm super familiar actually with his filmography, but you know who I loved in this movie? Ward Bond as yeah. Pat Wheeler. Yeah. Now he's not a person I don't know much about. I have seen him in a lot of different things. I think he, I want to say he was in the Maltese Falcon Oh, okay. Uh, he's just been in everything. If you look at his uh, his IMDb page, it's just ridiculously prolific. Interesting. I do love the Maltese Falcon. It's been a while. So one casting choice that I thought was really neat was Ricky Nelson. Yeah. Uh, I, I Colorado was another one of my favorite characters. He just kind of had a lot of personality and I think quite a bit of evolution over the course of the film. Yeah. But supposedly Howard Hawks thought he was too young right. and he tried to give him as few lines as possible for the third build star. And he instead wanted Elvis Presley. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And, you know, it's sort of a I mean, it is that kind of role, right? Uh, and that's why Ricky Nelson was cast. He was he was kind of an up and coming rock star, teen idol heartthrob. And that's why he was that's really why he was cast. And this, he turned 18 on set. And wasn't there something about John Wayne gave him a sack of manure or something? Yeah. So supposedly John Wayne and uh, Dean Martin gave him a big sack of manure for his 18th birthday and then promptly tossed him into it as a as a bit of. Hazel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a bit every, of a shitty prank. Every. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> every uh every um interview that i heard about this movie that was one thing they frequently be went back to is just how well all the cast and, and everybody got along with each other they all had a great time filming this and really that camaraderie shows through on the screen and it's probably the defining aspect of this movie we've kind of talked around it quite a bit but uh, a good way to sum up a lot of what we've been saying about the pacing and about the kind of light-hearted tone uh is the way that quentin tarantino uh once summed up the movie as one of the all-time great hangout movies. He said, you know, he when Quentin Tarantino was talking about it, we both watched a video in, of it, and he was um, 
saying, you know, this is the kind of movie where it's long enough to where you get to know these characters. And so much of the movie is just them hanging out together. Uh, and you, they kind of become your friends along the way. Like you kind of feel like they're your friends. And I heard other people make that same uh, comment, you know, that, 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 and that friendship I think is the, is the defining aspect of Rio Bravo. It is incredibly character driven. Yeah. And the characters are just very likable. And it really does feel like by the end of the film that you, the on-screen characters have become your friends and you become very invested in their mission. So yeah. I, I think it's incredibly successful from that standpoint. And I know there are other character-driven Westerns, but I think this is probably one of the most character-driven films of the genre. Yeah, you know, in, in a genre that is that the first thing people think about is, you know, the, the, the gun smoke and the, and the gunfire and, and, you know, all that stuff, uh, the action. Yeah. This movie is by and large, very character driven. And, and I think that's a, it's great strength. As I said, you know, the characters. And not even just the, the gun smoke and the action, but I think another kind of archetype of Westerns is the lone gunslinger. Yeah, like the high plains drifter, and I think yeah. that's because a lot of people tend to associate westerns with kind of the Clint Eastwood style and the Man with No Name trilogy. And so that's different for me because growing up, my dad is not a huge Clint Eastwood fan. He liked uh, Outlaw Josie Wales and things like that, but whenever we would talk about westerns, my dad would always just be like, "Ah, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood." He, he, my dad liked John Wayne. So growing up, to me, westerns is John Wayne's territory, baby. So I think the when it comes to westerns, the first ones that I was introduced to were probably more the Clint Eastwood style, and I do love the Outlaw Josie Wales. I remember yeah, watching that on TNT back in the day a lot. But I think I might prefer. I think I definitely prefer the John Wayne style more. I have so I've just come to really love westerns overall, and so to me, because of my dad, like John Wayne and that type of like traditional western was kind of my my first love, I suppose, of westerns. But I do now. I, I should let it be known that I love the Clint, Clint Eastwood movies. I love I love spaghetti westerns. As we were preparing for this, I thought, you know, this is a great traditional American western to talk about. But probably pretty soon, I'm going to want us to do a, a spaghetti western episode. Uh, particularly because the original not to get off on too much of a tangent but the original uh the original Django is finally about to be released on blu-ray uh, at the end of this month and i'm very excited oh uh, i'm gonna have to pick that up i think we're both gonna have to pick that Man, up aren't we i have been waiting for two years while they sorted out the rights uh issues with that blu-ray and now arrow's finally putting out their uh original Django. Uh, not the Quentin Tarantino, obviously, but the original 60s Django, which is a really wild spaghetti western. I'm definitely going to have to cop that one. So kind of talking a little bit more about the cast. I thought one of the most interesting scenes was the singing scene towards yeah. the end. Right. And... I mean, on the one hand, you kind of see why it's there. You know, Dean Martin, great voice. But it seemed a bit kind of haphazardly shoved in there. And I have mixed feelings on it. I didn't think it necessarily fit. I thought it was a little jarring. And I'm kind of curious what you thought of that scene. 
I'm actually really glad that you brought that up because that's another place where it's, you know, that's kind of uh, interesting. Like when I was watching interviews and, and listening to commentaries about this, most people mentioned that scene and how it kind of felt a little, you know, weird to modern audiences. And some people even thought it was kind of cringy. Now to me, that scene is one of my favorite things about the movie. Once again, probably because I'm such a big Dean Martin fan. Um, and the fact that had that scene not been around, I might not have even come to this movie. I mean, you know, I, I loved hearing Don, uh, Dean Martin, who, by the way, almost all the Rat Pack, especially Dean Martin and Sammy Davis, were big Western fans. Dean Martin loved country music. He did um, what he would call them his country records. They're not really country records. They're more like Western songs but uh, in, in his style. But he loved that kind of stuff. So, so for me, I've never considered that scene awkward cringy i'm so glad it's in the film the thing i'll say about it is that it's i think it's sort of a it has to do with how it was made right like this was a very old hollywood film and back in the day having singing numbers like that in a movie was pretty common Uh, you know howard hawks did it frequently as a way to show bonding among the characters and so i don't think it would have seemed as out of place to audiences of the time or or even possibly a decade earlier than this film uh which was really sort of a callback to an old to an old hollywood kind of thing um so i can see how from a modern viewpoint it seems out of place but for me i wouldn't have it any other way i love that scene and i am so glad it's in but yeah, it's interesting, and and I kind of can see and and wondered if you what you would think about that scene. Yeah, because I I thought a lot of the purpose of it was to show the how how the group had bonded so much, but I felt like that was so well communicated to the audience already that I it just didn't seem like it was necessary, and it's not that I didn't enjoy the scene i just didn't feel like it fit the film it just kind of was stuck in i thought it was a great scene but it just was like wait a second is is this now a musical is like bing crosby in a role on set with the with the the piano yeah no i i wish as well (laughs) i would like to go on record and state i love bing crosby films i adore white christmas it's a yeah a holiday treat every year yeah but yeah i just was a little shocked well and you're not wrong and i mean some of you know the early advertising for the film one of the selling points was hear dean martin and ricky nelson sing together that was a thing that was used to advertise the film so i mean you know you're not wrong and that the fact that it was definitely thrown in there to get people to be like hey check out dean martin and uh ricky nelson singing together which by the way that's the thing that i wanted to make sure to mention about dean martin uh it's just how how i thought this was interesting as as a fan of his of his work you know um i really like martin and lewis movies and uh i really like the rat pack and this movie fell in that weird kind of in-between space. Like he had recently broken up the act of Martin and Lewis, which most people I guess will know, but maybe people won't. Um, Dean Martin and uh, Jerry Lewis were a, were a very famous comedy duo that did a lot of movies together. Dean Martin was sort of the straight man and Jerry Lewis was the cut up. Uh, and they did a lot of really funny, great movies together. And Dean would always sing, you know, in a lot of the movies. And then that broke up. And then he did, there was just a brief time where he was already running around with Frank Sinatra and people like that. But you don't really get what people think about as the coalescing of the Rat Pack 
uh, until Ocean's Eleven, until they made Ocean's Eleven in the 60s. Right, because that was, uh, I want to say, 63, 64. Yeah, I can't Ocean's remember. Eleven. It was something like that. But I love that movie. Oh, that's a classic. Oh, I love it so much. That is a veritable classic. Uh, so with that, we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we'll keep discussing Rio Bravo. like Rio Bravo, with its thundering story of raw courage against overwhelming odds, and its once-in-a-lifetime combination of today's hottest star names. You've seen nothing like them together, and here at Rio Bravo, nothing can tear them apart. Not even a thank you do I get. Maybe you're right, Stumpy. Huh? You're a treasure. Well, <laughs> I don't know what I'd do without you. <laughs> well, I... Tired, aren't you, John T? I can fix you a nice hot bath. All I want is a drink. Then uh, this is all I can do for you. I told him you were one of the best. I'll tell you what I'm a lot better at, Mr. Wheeler. That's minding my own business. No offense, Sheriff. Where are you going? Get your hands off. I said, where are you going? You got no use for a man you can't depend on. One bad night and I'm done for. Better go easy on that stuff. That makes three you have. Yep. You'd be lying because that's what I am, a, a soft-headed idiot. There isn't any other explanation for staying around here and inviting myself into this. Round the bend. Round the bend. She'll be waiting. She'll be waiting. My rifle pony and me. Oh, my rifle, my pony and me. This has been one of the few peaceful scenes from the picture Rio Bravo with John Wayne, Dean Martin, and Walter Brennan here, and a new girl, Angie Dickinson. Tell him about Ricky Nelson. Oh, yeah, that's me. Come and see us. Hey, guys, we're back, and we are talking about the 1959 classic Rio Bravo. So earlier on, we kind of talked a little bit about how Rio Bravo and another Western 1952's High Noon are pretty similar. Yeah. And Howard Hawks and Gary Cooper were friends and apparently they rode motorcycles together according to the show notes. Yeah, and uh, and John Wayne and, and 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 Gary Cooper were buddies too. They used to go hunting and fishing together and all that jazz. They were they were buddies as well. I did not realize that. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, but 
Yeah, so we both watched High Noon and Rio Bravo this week. Well, actually, I haven't revisited High Noon this week. It's been about a year since I've seen High Noon, but yeah. Uh oh well yeah. I watched it for the first time this week yeah it's not as fresh in my mind as it is in yours but I do love it yeah it was it was quite good I think it was a, a bit more of a in my mind sort of a stereotypical western mm. than Rio Bravo even though I think on the surface Rio Bravo is a very stereotypical western yeah uh, because both of them kind of follow this uh, upstanding lawman who has a just complete dedication to the pursuit of justice and a disregard for the danger that it puts him in. Now, one thing to mention about High Noon, though, when we talk about it being a stereotypical Western, is that it is one of the films that set the stereotype. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, granted, it comes a little later in the 50s than the, your earlier Westerns, but High Noon is, a, is an oft-copied, oft-repeated um, Western and always considered one of the greats. That's a great point. And it even inspired the 1981 sci-fi film Outland. Yeah, which we saw at the retro, right? And I didn't even realize that till I was doing the I didn't even put it together until I was doing the the research for this. Yes, that was a retro a few years back, I want to say 2016, and it was yeah. paired with Brainstorm. Right. And yeah, Outland, uh, I'm going to give that a quick plug. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely check it out. I felt like it was kind of a, and uh, I talked to Donnie about this, one of our mutual friends, uh, about how it was, it almost felt like a spiritual successor to Alien. But a difference is that instead of there being an alien or an extraterrestrial that is posing a threat, it's humans. And you have a marshal in space that is weeding out corruption. And I think the tagline was even something like, even in space, the greatest threat is man. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. And while we're, Uh, while we're shouting that out, I will say, I'll do a quick, quick plug for the retro film series. Uh, Everybody who's listening to this should check out the retro film series on Facebook Um, right now, especially because if you're not fortunate enough to live here, like we are and be able to go to the retro physically, um, they are, during this whole quarantine period, while the theater is closed, they're doing uh, movie classic movie screenings on uh, through their Facebook page on every Monday and when, I mean, I'm sorry, every Wednesday and Friday. Um, so right now, anybody can can get in on the the retro, which is nice. And it's been a really good mix of films too, kind of some more well known stuff, some cult classics. So and, highly recommend checking that out. And if I might add, I believe that next Friday. Uh, the 26th of June. I'm not sure when this episode will drop, but uh, they're going to be showing one of the all-time great uh, horror movies, Night of the Living Dead, hosted by yours truly. So you should definitely tune in. And the episode will be posted before that. Uh, So kind of getting back to High Noon a little bit. Right, sure. And Rio Bravo. Uh, according to the show notes, uh, Wes, I think you noted that it was thought to be an allegory for blacklisting in Hollywood and a critique of McCarthyism. Yeah, right. So for people who don't know, obviously in the in the 50s, you know, the Cold War is, is getting kicked off. Everybody's, you know, we got the Red Scare going on. Everybody's seeing communists under their bed. Uh, and Joseph McCarthy was a senator who 
you know, was really leading like the, the push to like out communists. And, you know, they bring people before the House uh, Un-American Activities Committee and and get people to name names for suspected communists and things like that. And uh, it, it, it touched Hollywood in a big way. And so blacklisting was a thing that people would would be brought up as suspected communists and uh if if they were under suspicion of communist sympathies basically just be run out of hollywood they would be blacklisted and john wayne uh noted hollywood conservative uh was a was a big anti-communist uh and was a was an active supporter of the practice of blacklisting which is one of the marks kind of on him now because that's not really <laughs> history does not look kindly on mccarthyism and blacklisting but john wayne was a, was a big supporter of uh running out the suspected communists including carl foreman who wrote um high noon and so interestingly regarding uh, john wayne being such a staunch Republican, according to IMDb trivia, Montgomery Clift, who was a liberal Democrat and bisexual, was offered the role of dude, but turned it down because he didn't want to work with John Wayne and Walter Brennan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, but it is interesting that I, I think that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that it's also interesting who who was kind of more conservative and not because also we're going to be getting into the high noon thing. But Gary Cooper was was a known uh, conservative, though, an opponent of blacklisting. I uh, see. I, I don't know too much about his uh, like his backstory and his and his politics. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, uh, sometimes I prefer that. But <laughs> with some of these guys, it just jumps out at you. So taking into consideration that it's been, I think you said about a year since you've you've watched High Noon, between the two, because I, I think there are a lot of similarities, but also a lot of differences, yeah. but do you prefer one over the other? You know, honestly, I mean, I'm going to have to say that I prefer Rio Bravo just because I was thinking about my favorite Westerns this week and Rio Bravo consistently I put as my number two Western uh, of, of all. I mean, so I, I would say I prefer Rio Bravo, but I mean, High Noon is so good. I, I really like High Noon a lot. And I think that's kind of the interesting thing, especially looking back on it, kind of removed from the politics of that era. Like we live in a time now, we have enough crazy stuff going on in our in our society. But looking back on like the Red Scare and and, and blacklisting you know we're we're removed from that a little bit uh well a, a lot of bit and so that doesn't really impact us now we can kind of just look at the films for what they are um i will say while we're talking about that john wayne is uh, was quoted as saying high noon is the most un-american thing i've ever seen in my whole life um but <laughs> the, the, big, the big thing about um the big thing about uh high noon that seemed to really upset both John Wayne and especially Howard Hawks was, um, that, and I'll just, I guess I'll just put it right here in Howard Hawks's own words. He said, I made Rio Bravo because I didn't like high noon. Neither did Duke, which is John Wayne's nickname. I didn't think a good town marshal was going to run around town like a chicken with his head cut off, asking everyone to help. And who saves him? His Quaker wife. That isn't my idea of a good Western. So for people who haven't seen high noon, high noon is about, um, a well, actually, I gave the plot description for Rio Bravo, but you've more recently seen High Noon. You want to give a quick synopsis of High Noon? Yeah, uh, so it's uh, I would say it's a, a pretty similar high level setup uh, for uh, uh, when compared to Rio Bravo. So basically, there's this uh, marshal played by Gary Cooper, and there is this criminal who 
was put away for murder and he was sent, I think they set up north and he was supposed to hang, but he was let off and he's coming back into town. And he, along with uh, two comrades, are going to kill the marshal. And the marshal has just gotten married to his Quaker wife. And he was about to go on his honeymoon and instead decides to stay back and tries to go around and deputize pretty much anyone in the town. And no one accepts. No one will help him out. So he takes them on by himself and ultimately is, like it says here in the show notes, saved by his Quaker wife. Yeah, and the reason why the Quaker thing is so important, obviously, for people who aren't history buffs, is that Quakers are uh, are notoriously pacifist, right? Quakers refuse violence. They they don't fight in the military. They are pacifists. They don't believe in any violence. So his wife, as a Quaker in the film, is absolutely opposed to the concept of him staying around to fight Frank Miller when he comes back into town. And, and I I actually thought that was kind of a neat yes subversion even though i knew it was coming but i thought it was a kind of powerful moment because i think it showed very clearly that her dedication to her husband was stronger than her religious convictions yeah and i even uh, i really liked the end of the film because i don't know how well you remember it but the marshal throws his badge on the ground after words and the and uh, leaves with his wife and so i sort of interpreted it as the reason that he stayed behind was not for the town per se it was sort of for the town but it was also i think uh kind of out of love for his wife and his community yeah and to kind of keep them safe and a sense of personal honor i think exactly Um, so as, as much as I love Rio Bravo and I know it was made as a direct rebuttal of, of high noon, I actually am a big fan of both, of both films. Um, Howard Hawks, as we said a minute ago, his big problem was the, the marshal in high noon in his words, running around like a chicken with his head cut off. But if you actually watch the film and leave all that aside, it doesn't play that way to me. I mean, he, he does go around trying to get help, but it, it's to portray him as sort of an upstanding person with a personal code. And you see all these other people who just, who just aren't willing to help him. They just aren't willing to go there. So I think that high noon in a way has a lot of, of, of what you're told makes a good story, right? Which is personal conflict. Um, you know, it's much less, um, I don't know how to describe what I'm talking about, but, but Rio Bravo, the sheriff, I mean, yeah, John T. Chance in Rio Bravo doesn't really go through any um, a lot of internal struggle. He knows what he has to do. He's helping other people with their internal struggle, like Dude, uh, with his whole uh, redemption story. But he himself is not really going through that much internal struggle, which was sort of the point. But I, I, I love Rio Bravo, and I said a minute ago, if I had to choose between two, I'm choosing Rio Bravo. But I think that that internal struggle... Uh, in High Noon is is really what makes it such an effective film and have such a powerful uh, message. I would 100% agree with you on that. And I even was kind of shocked at that description of the marshal is running around like a chicken with his head cut off yeah. because I, I think that was a misinterpretation of his character and his actions yes. because I, I agree. Like you said, he's he is going around 
and he's pleading with the townsfolk for help, but not because he doesn't know what to do. It's because he knows exactly what he yeah. has to do. And unlike Jaunty Chance, he doesn't have this kind of ragtag team of helpers. He's just gotten himself. Yeah, he's and not a coward. I, no, he's not at all. Uh, in fact, I think if anything, he showed his, he wore, you know, his badge of, of bravery uh, by, even though you knew he wanted to and was tempted to just leave with his wife, instead he stayed behind because he was yeah. just, that he was just all lawful good character. Yeah. Lawful good. Yeah. Right. Roll that D and D footage. Yeah. He, um, <laughs> yeah, he was. And, and I, I really love that. Um, but you know, um, another, another thing that I'd never really thought about with all that, I've thought about that a lot over the years. I, I saw Rio Bravo long before I ever saw high noon. And, um, I was, so that's why I was really thankfully surprised that I loved high noon so much when I saw it. But one thing that I'd never thought about, uh, in this commentary track, John Carpenter, um, talked a lot about how, um, Howard Hawks had this, had this real idea that he loved in his films about the professional, about about somebody about a professional versus an amateur, and uh, he was really big on a, on a hero with his own personal code and and this this professional ethic. And so, uh, what it plays out in the film is that John T. Chance doesn't want to go around asking people for help, and in fact, actively refuses help from the townspeople because he only wants professionals. He doesn't put, want to put amateurs in harm's way. So when uh, Mr. Wheeler that you were talking about earlier, or when the um, person who owns the hotel, uh, when they offer their help, he turns it down because he doesn't want to put them in harm's way. And even somebody like um, Stumpy or like Dude, who have their flaws, you know, Stumpy has his his injury he's a cripple as they say and and uh and he's also old and and dude has his problems with alcohol but they're they're professional men they don't have to go home to their to their families and their wives and their kids and so when they put themselves in harm's way it's a whole other thing and also to juxtapose him a bit with uh, gary cooper's marshall from high noon what chance does is he even when he does want someone on his team that is professional and competent, such as Colorado, he doesn't try to convince them. Yeah, he 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 lets Colorado come around on his own because it was it was pretty early on. I think uh, it was that Wheeler offered Colorado's assistance. Yeah, and Chance said, "Well, does he want to do that?" And Colorado sort of politely refuses. And I think that sort of happens a few different times throughout the film until he finally agrees to join forces. Yeah, and you get the classic moment too. Um, you know, uh, and it was—I can't claim full credit for this. It was mentioned in the commentary as well. But they talked a lot about how how uh, Howard Hawks. One of the greatest compliments he could give you is to say you were good. You say you were good, and so that that descriptor is used a lot. And, and it's funny for that word they use it in such a way that it has a lot of meaning. So when Wheeler offers his assistance chance says you're not good enough and then several times throughout the film they say like about colorado they're like do you think he's good or do you think he's as good as wheeler says he is and and uh john wayne says i think he's so good he doesn't have to prove it and stuff like that you know they talk about who's good and i i thought that and it kind of plays into the whole professional versus amateur thing as well i did not realize that i, I didn't uh do the good count throughout well if you watch it two and a half times in one week you uh start hearing them say the word good a lot 
Uh, I'll, I have a little catching up to do. I've only seen it <laughs> once this week. <laughs> I think you've been busier at work, maybe than I have. Don't tell work. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> don't, don't worry, no, uh, your your employer will not listen to this uh, podcast. <laughs> they might. I've been busy. <laughs> it was um, work overtime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that's the good so, thing about working from home, though. You know, you can just play the, you can have it on in the background or whatever. Yeah, and it's really easy to listen to commentary tracks while you're doing something else. Uh, so, was there you? You mentioned uh, you've mentioned like listening to the commentary track. Mm-hmm. Did you have a favorite piece of trivia that you picked up from listening to the commentary track? Hmm. That's a good question. You know. I don't know that I had a favorite piece of trivia, but I think the thing that the commentary track did for me was center this film. So whenever I've watched this movie before, I always think about it in terms of John Wayne's um, filmography. Like I compare it to other John Wayne movies, but the commentary track, probably because Carpenter's such a big Howard Hawks fan, really helped to center it in um, in the repertoire of Howard Hawks more for me. And I started thinking about other Howard Hawks films like um, to have and have not and things like that, um, that I'd never really thought to make those, to draw those comparisons before. Um, Maybe the thing that I realized, I guess a piece of trivia that I thought was interesting from the commentary was uh, how much Howard Hawks likes to borrow from himself (laughs) and how much the scenes between uh, uh, John Wayne and Angie Dickinson were very similar to a lot of scenes between Bogart and Bacall in To Have and Have Not. Very Be- similar. Because there's that concept of the Hoxian woman. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, the Hoxian woman, which is uh, kind of a famous thing for Howard Hawks. Um, probably best encapsulated by Lauren Bacall in movies like To Have and Have Not. Um, this kind of like tough-talking woman, um, she she gets she plays with the boys you know what i mean like a, a hawksian woman i think it's very interesting because even though howard hawks was was not an, a proponent of feminism or anything like that you get in his films a strong female character um i think it's interesting i thought that the the use of gender in this film and and in other um howard hawks films are is really interesting because yeah i mean you you get this idea of a strong female character who can play with the boys? She can keep up with the boys verbally. She can verbally spar with them. She goes after what she wants. You'll notice in this um, film and in a lot of you know the, the films with that type of character, uh, the woman is the aggressor in the romantic relationship. Uh, usually in this movie, if there's something happening between Chance and Feathers, Feathers is making it happen. Feathers is going after him. Uh, and I just always think that's really cool. I, I like that concept of the Hawksian woman. I mean, and, 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 you know, she also has moments where she's very emotional, like in the scene when she helps, um, when she helps the shootout, when they're about to shoot John Wayne in the street and Colorado tells her to, to cause a distraction by throwing a flower pot out a window so that they can gun down the bad guys. Well, afterwards she has a real breakdown after doing that, but you could kind of look at it as her playing into to more typical um, female gender roles, but at the same time, it also just humanizes her in a, in a way that I thought was really um, was really helped build that character out. I mean, that's realistic. In so many movies, violence happens and there's no there's no consequence. But she throws that flower pot. She doesn't shoot anybody. She throws that flower pot. 
But the fact that she helped get those guys killed, which granted, they were bad guys. They were about to kill the sheriff, but it weighs on her, and you see that. And so I just thought she was a very interesting character, but she definitely fit that tough-talking, goes-after-what-she-wants uh, model of the Hoxian woman. Definitely. And uh, I, I really liked her character quite a bit. I think the flower pot scene was really quite powerful because of the reasons you mentioned, the way that she reacts and actually shows emotion after these guys are killed, even though, yes, they are villains. But I think she's the only one in that scene who really sort of understands that, you know, these lives have been taken. And then I think the other side of that coin is she was showing emotion because uh, Chance's life was in danger and she clearly has a romantic attraction to him, which is, is made very clear from even their first interaction. Uh, And I almost feel like she's sort of uh, almost the same type of character in many ways as chance. She, I think she holds a lot of the same convictions and that's something she sort of says, I think, at the end of the film. I can't remember what the what the line is, but it's something about them being the same or similar. Because they, even though they have the same convictions, I think they sort of express that differently. Yeah, I um, I would agree. With, I think that's actually a really good point. I never really thought about that, about them um, kind of being two sides of a coin. Yeah, because, I mean, if you think about it, Chance's entire... MO is that he's going to protect the town and he's going to serve justice uh, at all costs. And I mean, just think back to that one scene where he instructs feathers to wake him up before sunrise. And instead of doing that, what she does is she waits outside of his room to keep him safe, which I love. I love that. I thought, I thought it was, I thought it was incredible. I loved her character and I loved Angie Dickinson in this movie. I just thought she was so good. I don't know much about her filmography. I know this was sort of a breakout role for her. Uh, in one of the interviews she did, she was the only, of course, she's one of the only ones still left alive, I guess, but in the, um, she was one of the ones interviewed in one of the special features on the Blu-ray and she talked a lot about this film and how much she loved it. And But she did mention that she, since it was going to be one of her breakout role, uh, roles, she thought about changing her name. And she, she, Thought she couldn't think of much, but she decided she might want to call herself Angie Rome, and she came to uh, Howard Hawks, and he said, "Stick with Dickinson." <laughs> <laughs> Stick with Dickinson. So, so she did. Uh, that's yeah, funny. She was great in this. I, I really thought she was great, but it did remind me very strongly of Lauren Bacall in "To Have and Have Not," which I mean is a high compliment because, as we were saying during the break. Uh, I am a big fan of Lauren Bacall and she is so good into Have and Have Not. Uh, and which is one that I haven't seen. Uh, it was the movie that introduced me to Humphrey Bogart, who to this day is one of my favorite um, movie stars and um, my favorite Bogart movie and my favorite movie in, in overall is Casablanca. But To Have and Have Not is very a very similar film to that and, and really remind uh, was the, my draw into Bogart's films. I think the first Bogart film that I ever saw was Casablanca. That's a good one. <laughs> it's my yeah. favorite film of all. Yeah. That that's up there with my favorite films as well. I've I've even got a poster of that hanging up. Nice. Love it. Uh but speaking of favorite films, I think you mentioned that Rio Bravo was your second favorite western. Is that is that where I remember you you placed it? Yes. 
So do you have a best Westerns list? I do. Let me pull it up here. All right. So I, I know you like lists. You, you knew so I was going to ask that one. I know you like lists, so I thought about it in advance a little bit. So you said best Westerns, right? Overall Westerns. Yes. Okay. So I noticed as I was making this list, a little disclaimer, that even though I do love spaghetti Westerns, as we've talked about on previous uh, episodes, I love Italian genre films, but uh, I didn't put any spaghetti Westerns on this list because I found that most of my top favorite ones are are domestic Westerns, but I... Like I said, maybe in the future we'll revisit Spaghetti Westerns and talk then. My top Westerns, I'm going to go with number one, Tombstone. Number two, Rio Bravo. Number three, Red River. Number four, the original 310 to Yuma, uh, even though I did like the remake as well. And number five, Jeremiah Johnson. There are a few of those that I haven't seen. I have not seen, I think you said Red River. Right. I have not seen the original 310 to Yuma. I've okay. only seen the remake. Yeah. I did uh, love I love the remake. I love Christian Bale. And and did you see Jeremiah Johnson? Jeremiah Johnson. I have never even heard of that one. Jeremiah Johnson's my dad's favorite movie. So I always knew Jeremiah Johnson. It's a mountain man movie, right? So it's not your typical Western. Um, I love a snow Western, by the way. That's another thing that I, I really love a good Western that takes place in the snow. It's more rare, but uh, Jeremiah Johnson is, it's a mountain man movie. So it's not your cowboys and that kind of thing, but he, uh, it's a, just a, a story about a man who decides he wants to move up into the mountains. And uh, I think he's a, a, he's a civil war vet. And so after the civil war, he just moves up there and he, kind of just learns the ropes uh, hunting grizzly bears and finds himself an Indian bride and all that jazz. But it's a, it's a really great movie. There, there are definitely a couple of those that I want to check out because uh, uh, just watching Rio Bravo really kind of made me want to explore Westerns a little bit more. Uh, one that I'm surprised you didn't say was the classic, the wild, wild West. Oh, I've never seen it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> it is it is truly terrible i've never seen it uh, <laughs> uh but yeah that was that was a, that was a good list uh if I, so i i also have a list okay good i i made a list of a couple faves and ours might be somewhat similar in this regard top of the list tombstone it's hard to beat man <laughs> love it it is just a masterpiece infinite so replay cool. value and it has uh, a couple of our favorite actors in there. Amen. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I love that. And I would also sh- say The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance. Good choice. Uh, Rio Bravo. 310 to Yuma, the, the remake, because I haven't seen the original. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's... That's it. Uh, yeah. Oh, you know what? The True Great remake. Loved okay, it. Good. Yeah, that, there you go. Now you're at five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like like I mentioned, I, I haven't seen a ton of Westerns. I feel like it's this genre that I need to explore a bit more. Very common when I talk to people about Westerns, which, by the way, is a thing that as a fan of Westerns, um, both as a, as a movie watcher and as a literature fan and... Um, quick plug i got a western story coming out next month if anybody wants to check out frontiertales.com in july but uh but the fact that the western genre has had this decline 
is something that really makes me sad. Um, but most people that I talk to when they when they when they watch westerns, uh, you know, or, or read them, they really enjoy them. It's just kind of it makes me sad that um, it is kind of almost disappeared. You know, book, bookstores hardly have any westerns anymore. Uh, now, occasional westerns are being made, and and a lot of times very good westerns still. Um, but yeah, uh, you, it's not uncommon for people to I feel like to have not seen as many westerns as other genres. Yeah. And I think I think some of it probably comes back to like you were saying, it's not a genre that is that widespread anymore. Yeah. But there have been some recent westerns and yes. I, at least several of those have been remakes. Yeah. Like 310 to Yuma and, and True Grit, but there've also been some originals. Like right. uh there there was Bone Tomahawk. Yes, I loved it. Did you did you like it? Yes, I did. Oh, okay. Because I've been meaning to watch that because it looks like it has some horror elements. And of course, it has the legendary Kurt Russell in it. The greatest actor of our generation. Um, Hands down. So Bone Tomahawk rules. I'm not going to get into it too much because I don't want to spoil it for people since it's so so, uh, recent. But Bone Tomahawk rules. Um, But it is a real tricky movie because at the beginning of it, it's like a classic Western. I was watching it like, I'm going to watch this with my dad. Like I was watching the first half of the movie, like I'm going to watch this with my dad. And about halfway through, it takes a sharp turn into horror. And me and my friend that were watching it together were like, Oh, (laughs) and that's when I knew I cannot watch this with my dad. Uh, I see. I need to watch that one. Maybe I will watch that one with my dad. If he's into really graphic horror, (laughs) he might like it. Uh, I I can usually get him to watch to watch stuff. I I got him to watch Lawnmower Man with me. Okay. Uh, so yeah, it was like if he'll sit through that with me, uh, he'll he'll sit through pretty much anything. Uh, and then of course Django Unchained would be another uh, prime yeah. example of a of a western. And the Hateful Eight. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Both Tarantino, of Tarantino. <laughs> yeah, he loves westerns. He he has a lot of callbacks to spaghetti westerns. I was glad to hear him um, in a lot of his movies. He calls even in Kill Bill had a lot of spaghetti western influence. But I was glad to find that interview of him talking about Rio Bravo because I wasn't sure what he thought about American westerns, but I knew he was a big spaghetti western dude. Yeah, you're you're totally right about Kill Bill. That one is not a western, but it definitely has an uh, an influence from westerns. Yeah, it's just a it's just a genre film hodgepodge. Another great modern modern western. Well, there's been so many that I've loved, but um, obviously, I think a lot of people watched. Um, oh, I'm having a mind blank. Oh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. A lot of people watched that one and really liked it. And I liked one that had a similar title, but was not a similar movie called The Ballad of Lefty Brown, uh, which is lesser known. But another one that was really great um, was Ty West, the director of The House of the Devil, which is one of my favorite horror movies, did a Western called In a Valley of Violence uh, that I really liked a lot. I have not seen that. And I have also, for some reason, not gotten around to watching The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Very good. It's an anthology film, so it's kind of unique. I can I can probably get down with that. I do tend to like anthology films quite a bit. Oh, you know what? The Revenant. Was that? Was, does that yes. count as a Western? Oh, yeah, because it's another one of those Mountain Man type movies. Now, that's the one that uh, of all the recent ones, my dad did watch that and he liked it. And that was the one when I saw it, I was like, OK, dad will like this. Uh, and also, my dad really liked the Magnificent Seven remake. I I never got around to seeing that one. Very good. Uh, and and just looking at uh, looking at a few others, 
It looked Brokeback Mountain. I've never seen it. I've never seen that one. Uh, I Louis haven't Le- seen it. I think Louis L'Amour really uh, liked that one a lot. Interesting. Not Louis L'Amour. I'm sorry. I'm wrong about that. Um, Larry McMurtry, uh, the author of Lonesome Dove. Okay. Uh, and then A Million Ways to Die in the West. But I guess I think a common thread about these newer Westerns that have come out is that most of them are, they don't adhere to a typical Western format. It's more it's more in the setting. And that really, though, is what I think is so great about the Western and why I really always want the Western to make a comeback. Because... I think a lot of what happened to the Western is that it reflected a particular time in American history, and our society has changed a lot since then, and I think maybe people think that maybe Westerns don't have as much to say to us anymore, but the Western is is the great American myth, right? Like, I grew up loving fantasy, and I loved uh, knights and dragons and all that. I still do, but the older I've gotten, the more I've come to appreciate the Western, the, Western, the cowboy, is the American night right but but you don't have to do a, a traditional western you can take that setting and do so many things with it like you said most of these newer movies kind of break free uh in a really unique ways and so I, I always hope that we'll see a resurgence of the western when people realize that the western can encapsulate so many things it doesn't have to just be john wayne as much as i love john wayne it can be so many things and even Red Dead Redemption, I think it was, oh, the video game. I think yes. there was like an, uh, an expansion pack or something where you fight zombies. Oh, yeah, so, the, for the original Red Dead Redemption. <laughs> yeah, but so the vanilla game, I think, is more kind of a straightforward Western. And right. actually, uh, and before we started recording, we even talked a little bit about Red Dead Revolver, which is a game that I, I personally really enjoyed. And that one does sort of have that spaghetti Western kind of feel to it. But yeah. I think uh, Red Dead Redemption just goes to show that you can have and you can really play around with the genre a lot. You can do something more straightforward or you can throw in different elements like horror or uh, even comedy and kind of really spruce it up. Or, you, I mean, hey, you can even do like the Back to the Future 3 kind of thing. Yeah. You can do so much with it. It's a, it's a it's a weird film genre in that it is defined by the setting more than anything else, more than than the the plot, you know, or the the conventions. It's defined strictly by by time and place. Exactly, like the the atmosphere, the garb, but and I would I would also add the characters. I do think yes. the characters are very important to westerns, and I think sometimes they can be more dynamic uh other times they're not as dynamic but they're very concrete characters yeah and i also think though i really like seeing what people are doing in recent years with the characters right because that's another thing i feel like maybe people look at old westerns and maybe they think that they weren't inclusive enough and in a lot of ways they're probably right um but you know then you have more recent fare like i don't know if you ever watched the show um hell on wheels that was on netflix but um I think it was on Netflix. Maybe it was on AMC, actually. And I've watched it on Netflix. But um, Hell on Wheels did a lot of great stuff with uh, with people of color and with Indian characters and uh, even Asian characters, which, you know, uh, that I thought was really interesting uh, with that show. So I, I like to see those those roles that they're kind of like opening it up a little bit and making the, the characters more inclusive and recognizing, um, for example, I, I don't now my statistics are a little bit lost, but 
the the cowboy life was a place where um where like freed slaves and people like that could go to find equality apparently one in four cowboys was black uh, that i did not know yeah in history because I, I read about it because i love the history of the west but they were saying you know that despite what the conventions of the time may have been on when you're out on the trail driving cattle and you and you're constantly putting your life in each other's hands the color of your skin didn't matter as much. So supposedly, yeah, one in four cowboys was uh, in the Old West was black. Like, I'm actual cowboys. That is a fun fact. Yeah. Uh, and I might, after your glowing recommendation there, I might have to check out uh, Hell on Wheels. It, it was good. I, I actually never watched the last season. I need to go back and finish it. But it was it was a good show. It had Cole Meany in it. Love Cole Meany. Oh, O'Brien. Yep. <laughs> oh man yeah okay i definitely gotta check that out uh, but one so one aspect that we haven't touched upon yet that i do think defines westerns and especially is important to rio bravo is the music oh yeah right yes so uh, i loved the score for rio bravo and actually uh, funny story, when I first put it on, uh, I paused it about three minutes in and, and checked my, uh, I have a sound bar, and I checked my sound bar because I was like, what the hell? There's no dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> for, the, for the first several minutes, it was like four or five minutes of the movie, there's just no dialogue. Yeah. And I thought maybe maybe like the audio track went out or I, like, I think most uh, dialogue comes through the center channel. So I was like, maybe my center channel is... Is messed up, but no, just no dialogue. By the way, not to get off because I definitely want to talk about the music in this movie, but that scene apparently I found out through my research for this is is one of the most discussed aspects of this film, the opening uh, with no dialogue, like you said, for the longest time, because um, Howard Hawks intentionally did that apparently as sort of a return to his days. He got his start directing silent films. And so he really wanted to go back and kind of reflect some of those things that you used to see uh, in silent films in terms of how the characters communicate non-verbally. Um, so that's kind of interesting. And it's very effective. Yeah. Just body language, facial expressions, even the even the music going get- on really sets the scene. And the uh, first time you see John Wayne is sort of an interesting thing because Howard Hawks... Actually, one thing I love about Howard Hawks is he took a very straightforward um, style of filmmaking, which I got to say, I find very refreshing. Sometimes I just want to, I like something that just cuts out all the fluff and goes straight for it. And that was sort of his style, which I really like. But he also was famous for mostly just doing straight on camera shots. He didn't do a lot of fancy camera work. He had good shots and good cinematography, but he liked a straightforward shot. But when you first see um, John Wayne, so at the first of the movie, um, Borachon, dude, who has been a, a, a drunk, he's in the bar, and, and to humiliate him, somebody flips a silver dollar into a spittoon, so that, um, actually the main bad guy, um, flips a, a silver dollar into the spittoon, so that, so that dude will um, get down on his hands and knees and dig it out of the spittoon and pay for a drink, and John Wayne kicks the spittoon over, and so this shot you see is like a low-angle shot with uh, Dean Martin on the ground and John Wayne kind of standing up above him, looking down on him. It kind of establishes their relationship at the first of the film in, in, a, in a unique way for Howard Hawks. And also, John Wayne gets, uh, a chance gets knocked out 
in yeah. that scene, which yep. I thought was sort of a neat subversion that I was not expecting just because he's the stereotypical macho sheriff yeah. and does ultimately prevail. But I was not expecting for him just to get knocked out like that. Yeah, it was cool. And uh, that reminds me, I want us to stay on the, the music topic, but I, I would like to talk about the, um, after we're done talking about the music, I would like to talk about the scene uh, when they, uh, when dude chases the bad guy into the bar. Oh, that's a great scene. Yeah, but I want—I don't want to forget the music. But. Okay. Uh, yeah, so the soundtrack uh, was composed by Dimitri Tiomkin. Yeah. I may have mispronounced his name. I think you're right. Uh, and he apparently was very prolific scoring westerns. Yes. So his, his other credits include Gunfight at the OK Corral, Last Train from Gun Hill, The Alamo, Red River, High noon, the big sky, and duel in the sun. Yeah. So, and and notably, high noon, as you said. The, yeah. An arrival film. Uh, and I I thought it was a, a magnificent score. Oh, so good. It, it was. It felt distinct in a lot of ways, but it also had that kind of familiar western vibe to it. Yeah, and I mean honestly man those movies that you just named like the the music in all those movies is so iconic i keep a playlist that i just call cowboy music on my uh on my itunes and uh and it's got a lot of his themes like the theme from gunfight at the okay corral i listen to over and over again uh and um and the music from red river which actually the main theme from red river that melody they took and added lyrics to it and that became the song my rifle my pony and me that um dean martin and uh and uh Colorado, uh, Ricky Nelson sing together in this film. Um, yeah, but his music, man, it's so good. And I did love that song. Uh, I thought the lyrics were phenomenal. I just thought, thought it felt a little out of place in the film. The uh, Western Writers of America um, voted it as one of their top uh, cowboy songs of all time. The Western Writers of America has a, a list of the best like cowboy songs from Westerns, and it's on that list. Hey, you know, I'd agree. I, yeah. I think it is one of the better cowboy songs. Yeah, uh, I'd be interested to know what else was on the list. Yeah, I need to go back and review it. I mean, it's a it's a lot of great cowboy songs. People should check that out if you're super into cowboy stuff like I am. But uh, yeah, that song's on there. And one song from the film, uh, the Degayo, provided yeah. inspiration for the iconic Fistful of Dollars. Yeah, theme. supposedly, supposedly Sergio Leone um, had heard that, you know, in the in the movie, which, by the way, that Degueo that they play in this is uh, which also was later, I think, reused in the Alamo, which is a film I actually haven't seen that John Wayne directed one of his very few. But apparently um, Sergio Leone, when he was getting Ennio Morricone to write the the music for Fistful of Dollars, which is a very famous score, uh, told him that he wanted something that sounded similar to the, the Degueo from this movie. And I think there was even that line in Rio Bravo where it was explained that the Degeo was played at the Alamo. Right. So uh, in one of the commentary tracks, they talked about that a little bit more. And apparently this is actually not the real Degeo that was played 
mythology legend holds that during the siege of the Alamo, uh, the Mexican army that was outside played this song, you know, to kind of intimidate the people uh, inside the Alamo during that siege. They played the song over and over again. And uh, actually, Dimitri Tiomkin wrote this version of the Degueo, but uh, it's used in this film to great effect um, based uh, going along with that um, legend that Colorado tells John Wayne about. Basically it's used by the villains in this film. He, the, the Nathan Burdett, the bad guy who's trying to come get his brother out of jail, talks this local band into playing the Degueo basically nonstop the whole time to basically let them know, you know, danger lurks outside. So every time they hear that um, danger lurks and it, at one point it plays in, it plays pretty strongly into Dean Martin's, um, into dude's sort of redemption story in that <clears throat> there's a moment the dude, his struggle with alcoholism in this film is, is one of the most human performances and just really, I don't know. It's a standout. I love it so much. And uh, he kind of has his ups and downs. He, he kind of redeems himself and then he'll have a, he'll have a, a backslide back to his old ways. And there's one point in the film when he's just lost all confidence in himself because of something that's happened. And he's basically about to turn in his badge and just go back to the bottle. And he even pours himself a, a whiskey drink and he starts to drink it. And then he hears the Degueo playing. And just that song reminds him of all that's going on and all that people are depending on him and why he's there. And he pours that drink back into the bottle. And I just think that song, the Degueo plays such an important and awesome role in this movie. And uh, another key point in his evolution over the film and his kind of ups and downs is this moment when he and uh, Chance are chasing this uh, guy who shot at them. And yeah, uh, and they chase the mercenary through a barn and into a bar. Yeah. And right, uh, right before that, dude had shot at him. Right. And they get in the bar, and everyone in there is covering for them. And then, dude is just even com- starting to doubt himself that he's that he saw someone run in, and then he sees some blood dripping from the. Uh, like the rafters, like this little balcony area into a beer glass on the bar. And he realizes, okay, no, I did see him run in. So he kind of turns around and then whips back around quickly and shoots the guy. Oh yeah. And and so I thought that was an important moment also in Borachon's evolution throughout the film in that even he started to doubt himself. And then he realized not only was he correct that the mercenary ran in there, but he had actually shot the guy while the, while he was moving, he had a moving target. Yep. That's my favorite scene in the film. Uh, That's the one I was talking about a minute ago that I want us to get back to it. It's my favorite scene in the film. Uh, It's just so good. Obviously uh, Howard Hawks must've thought it was good because they almost reuse it. There's with a slight variation in El Dorado, Um, but uh, I, I love it so much, but I, I think, a, I love the cool dialogue. Like the whole time, it's just so cool. There's yet another scene when John Wayne whacks somebody in the face with his rifle. But I like um, 
I like watching, I love a good redemption story. Uh, and I like to see dude kind of regain his confidence in that scene and go in and kind of control the room. And you're right at the very last minute when he's starting to doubt himself. So that scene, the guy runs in and, and, and they're looking for somebody with mud on his boots because they're saying, you know, he's going to have dirty boots after having run through that barn and everything. And he's making everybody in the bar, um, show their boots and nobody's got mud on their boots. And, uh, and he's just about to give up and the people in the bar start to tease him again. Um, and he, uh, they, you know, they're saying, maybe you're seeing things, dude, maybe you should have a drink. And one dude flips a silver dollar into the spittoon again and says, you know, wants him to go get that out of there. And, uh, just before he's about to give up and take the drink, uh, he sees that blood drip and he whirls around and shoots the guy out of the rafters. Uh, and then they're about to march the, the guns out to take these people's guns. And, uh, I love it because John Wayne's in mid sentence and he, he looks at the guy who flipped the silver dollar in the spittoon and he says, uh, and, and he says, you all done, dude? And uh, dude says, are you in a hurry? And he says, not especially. And then dude makes that guy get down on his hands and knees and get the silver dollar out himself. It's just a great moment. Uh, and I think the thing that most that I love best about it is when they're about to go in, they're strategizing how they're going to go into this bar full of bad guys. And John Wayne's saying, you know, you go through the back and make a distraction and I'll go through the front. And Dean Martin says, you know, actually, I they've been making me go through the back. I'd like to come in through the front door. And so he says, all right. And so a dude walks in through the front door and John Wayne comes in through the back to cause the distraction. And then when this whole scene's done and, and he's kind of re- redeemed himself in everybody's eyes, uh, John Wayne looks at him and says, I guess they'll let you come in through the front from now on. I just really thought that was great. <laughs> yeah, that was one of my favorite lines of dialogue. And and I, I agree. I think that might be my favorite scene in the entire film. Yeah. It was it was a blast. The uh, one of the other one of my other favorite scenes, though, was the final showdown. Oh, yeah, that it was just pure fun. Yep. It was just a, it was just a blast, uh, quite literally. And yeah. <laughs> I, I think I, I use this term uh, pretty often on the podcast, but to use it again, there's sort of a, a, a Chekhov's uh, oh, yeah. dyna- dynamite cart because at the beginning of the film, Wheeler mentions that he brought some dynamite into town and he's told just to go uh, park it over by the warehouse. Yeah. <laughs> there's no explanation for why he just has a crate, uh, like a cart full of dynamite. He's just hauling dynamite, None. dude. <laughs> None whatsoever. And of course, as soon as that line is, is dropped, you know that in the third act, it's going to be important. And sure enough, uh, they're just... Um, a chance and and dude and stumpy and uh, even uh the uh, Carlos, yep. even the 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 friend Carlos, he's out there. They're all just shoot firing upon him and stump and Colorado and Stumpy is is by the dynamite cart and he just decides to start throwing them like clay pigeons and yep. uh and they end up blowing up the whole uh, warehouse. Yeah, he's throwing dynamite, and dude and Chance are just shooting the dynamite in the air, blowing up the the warehouse. And and isn't it lucky that the bad guys wanted to arrange the final <laughs> showdown in the warehouse where they decided to park the dynamite? Isn't that fortunate? That I, I mean, you couldn't have planned it any better. <laughs> Could not have planned it any better. Yeah, but I just really enjoyed that scene. Oh, so good. And in your and Walter Brennan is great in it. You're right. It's just total fun. He's having a great time. Yeah. I like the part when uh, Chance comes up to warn him that he's in a cart 
full, he's sitting beside a cart full of dynamite and he's like, get out of there. And Walter Brennan's like, no, I got a good spot. Get up here. And, and Chance is like, that's full of dynamite. And so then they start to move, but Chance, uh, I mean, not Chance, uh, Walter Brennan's character, Stumpy, grabs the dynamite. So that's actually some good thinking on uh, on Stumpy's part there. He kind of saves the day. Yeah, it, it cracked me up because his initial reaction is, well, wait, why didn't you tell me sooner? Yeah. And he starts running away from it. And then he kind of doubles back and grabs a box. And he goes, hey, I grabbed some. And Chance just replies something to the effect of, not a bad idea. Yeah, and it's great because you, it's great to see Stumpy get some validation. You know, he, they kind of have this weird uh, relationship throughout the film where it's very contentious, but kind of good-naturedly contentious. But it's good to see uh, Walter Brent Stumpy finally get some recognition for being competent. And uh, uh, Stumpy, I think, even touched upon upon that and kind of how I think, according to Stumpy, dude needed someone to be harder on him. And Stumpy yeah. revealed that he actually wanted uh, kind of more recognition and uh, and praise. Yeah, and that's the scene when uh, Chance gives him a little peck on top of his head, right? <laughs> yeah, the the one scene where he doesn't just hit someone with his gun. Yeah, right. <laughs> the the only scene. Uh, so uh, with that, why don't we rate this bad boy? Okay, I'm ready to go. All right, you want to go first? Yeah, I feel like the audience will probably have a hard time guessing where I'm going with this. Um, I will put it in the words of film critic Robin Wood, who said, "If he were asked to choose, if he were asked to choose a film that would justify the existence of Hollywood." It would be Rio Bravo. I like that, and I'm giving this film five stars. It is a movie that is near and dear to my heart, and I just, I really love it. This is a five star movie for me. I am not quite going to go five, but I'm giving this a 4.5. I absolutely loved this movie. I just had so much fun while watching it, and it's, I think, a, uh, something like a two and a half hour movie. Yes. If I'm not correct. Yep. So it has kind of a longer runtime and it just, I felt like it flew by. Yeah. Uh, I was just having such a good time watching it. Uh, I love the characters. Uh, it, it just balances genres really well. has a lot of humor in there. So yeah, I, I love this. Uh, I definitely want to give it another watch. Uh, at some point, I think it's I'm going to add it to my list of uh, films to rewatch on a regular basis. I think yeah. it deserves that. Like if you haven't if this is a movie where if you haven't seen it, you should go watch it right away. And if you have seen it, watch it again. It's just a, it's at such a comfortable pace where it's like fun to watch and you can just kind of hang out with it and kind of watch it over and over again. But it's not it's never boring either. It's kind of, it's really neat in that way. Yeah, and the the characters I think just have so much nuance. Yeah, it's it's really character driven, and, and uh, in fact, I'll to quote another person who I saw, Richard Schickel, uh, on the commentary track said um, that the true value of this movie is not in its plot or its main plot points, but what happens between the lines, between the plot points. And I thought that was a really great way to to sum that up. I, I yeah, I think that's a an excellent assessment. I yeah. mean, the narrative is sort of there as a framework through which you can get to know the uh, the characters and kind of their relationships and just kind of have a blast while watching it. And I, uh, 
I know that this is uh, this episode's already going a little bit long, but uh, but as always, I have a, a slight postscript that I wanted to add that we haven't talked about yet, which is that the screenplay for this movie was was at least in part written by Lee Brackett. Um, Lee Brackett was a um, female, but she's yet another person who kind of this was common back in the day. She benefited from having a name where maybe not everybody knew she was a female. In fact, apparently when Howard Hawks first met her, he was very surprised uh, that this uh, lady walked into his office as Lee Brackett. Um, but she was a frequent Hawks collaborator. She would go on to write the two, what most people consider almost remakes that Howard Hawks and John Wayne also did of this film, uh, El Dorado and Rio Lobo. She wrote the screenplay for both of those. And her, fi- she was a, a famous or somewhat famous science fiction genre writer as well. And her final, I think her final screenwriting credit, The Empire Strikes Back. Wow. Yep. Did not know that. Yep. I'm going to have to peruse her IMDb page. Yeah, very interesting uh, writer. Huh. Yeah, I'm going to have to familiarize myself a little bit more. I'm I'm sure I've seen a lot of things that she has writing credits in. I'm just not uh, yeah. not as familiar with those. For some reason, I tend I feel like I tend to remember directors a lot more than writers. Yeah, I think that's pretty common. Yeah, which is kind of ironic uh, since I am a writer. <laughs> yeah. Not of films, but still. <laughs> yeah. I got to give the writer some credit. Um, yeah, I, I'm really glad you picked this film. This was a good yeah. one. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, you know, I, I thought you would, but I, I'm glad you did. Yeah. Now, uh, I, and I kind of want to do a, a spaghetti Western sometime on the, on the cast. So maybe, maybe up, I'll pick a, a spaghetti Western for an upcoming episode. Yeah. It won't be hard to convince me to talk about that. Yeah, I think I can twist your arm. <laughs> I think I can twist your arm, Pilgrim. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Obligatory uh, John Wayne imitation. Um, so it's got to be done. Yeah, it, we we didn't have a choice. It was it was predestined. Got to be done. Uh, so that's our show for the night. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. If you haven't already done so, head over to iTunes or Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe as well as leave us a rating and a review on iTunes because it helps us out quite a lot. You can also follow us at Celluloid Fiends on Facebook and Twitter and Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram. And if you want to follow me, you can check me out at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. And you can read my writing on film at cupofmo.com. And you can check out my tech articles at techuplife.com. Yeah, and at, uh, as we're signing out here, I'll just remind everybody, if you want to follow me on Instagram, you can follow me at Cliff Weston on Instagram. And if you want to check out my fiction writing, um, you can check me out at wdclifton.wordpress.com. While we're closing up this episode on one of the greatest Westerns of all time, I'll say how pleased I am as a Western fan to have my first uh, published Western short story. It's called To Cheat the Hangman, and it's coming out. Uh, on FrontierTales.com for their July issue. So uh, just a quick plug for that. If anybody wants to read um, my Western story, uh, you can go to FrontierTales.com in July and and it'll be published. I will 100% be checking that out. Thanks, dude. But for now, we'll ride off into the sunset. Adios, pilgrim. Stop it, please, for God's sake, please stop it. There's no more time. You've got to, please, stop it. Stop it now. Turn it off. Turn it off. Stop it. 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 Stop it.